Drummer Steve Smith's career has been defined by discipline and a constant desire to improve his craft and being at the right place at precisely the right time. From his start on a practice pad to the early days with violinist Jean Luponti, through his historic ride, recording and touring with Journey, and playing with jazz luminaries throughout the decade, there's little Steve hasn't done. As luck would have it, Steve has a home in Ashland, Oregon, the same town where I live, and it was my distinct pleasure to have a conversation with him. Steve is driven to keep learning and growing, improving his craft. Gigs or no gigs, recordings or no recordings during a pandemic, he continues to push the boundaries of drumming and his own musicianship. Our conversation runs the gamut from practice techniques and rudiments to touring with rock icons and what it's like to be a rock drummer performing at the highest level into your 60s. We had so much fun talking. Sit back and enjoy this episode with Steve Smith. Hi, welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Steve Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so very much for being here. It's quite an honor. My distinct pleasure to be here and be part of your joyful musician (laughs) podcast. Yeah, playful. It's uh, oh, the playful music. The playful musician. That's fine. I but gotta it, get it right. <laughs> no, no, joyful, playful. That's what it's all about. And you know, I always say we call it playing music. We don't call it working music. Right. That's for true. a reason. Um, so yeah, it's great to have you. Um, I we both live in Ashland, and it brings up the question for me of like, of all the places that Steve Smith could have could be like what drew you i'm curious what drew you to ashland well first of all let me say ashland's in oregon ashland oregon yes some people in ohio might be listening because there's an ashland in ohio right and if you know your ashland history you know that some folks from ohio moved to ashland oregon and and named the the town after the town they i didn't know that yeah it is true um well uh, for 28 years i lived in marin county in mm-hmm. the Bay Area. And and my wife Diane also lived there for twenty-eight years. Um we met we met there, um and but coincidentally we, we moved there the same year, nineteen seventy eight. Mm-hmm. And um we had enough of 
of the Bay Area. We had a really good run there. We loved it. We loved being mm. there. Um, we were there from 78. And, and I get a little hazy on exactly when we sold our home there and, and moved here. But it was because it was a crossover period. Um, sure. But we, it was something like 2005. And we, you know, we're a little tired of the, the traffic in the Bay Area. Yeah. And, um, and musically, I had, I had done a lot there, though I would never have considered myself a local Bay Area musician. I would have, I'd consider myself an international touring musician that was based in Marin County, you know, based Got in it. the Bay Area. Because yeah. I did some interaction and some playing with local musicians, but not much. Did and, you ever run into, sorry to interrupt, did yeah. you ever run into Mel Martin while Absolutely. you were Absolutely. Okay. So Mel and I lived in the same town. Like I started out <laughs> Mill Valley, moved to Lagunitas, and then ended up for the longest time in Novato. And right. that's where, where Mel lived. And yeah. so I would go to, to his house and, you know, he had a little recording studio in his house and we would play. We would, you know, and then I, I did at different times, I I wasn't around enough to play gigs. So I did mm -hmm. play gigs with his band. We used to play at like Bach Dancing and Dynamite Society. Do you know that club? <laughs> no, I didn't know. It's in Half Moon Bay. It okay. was it's really an incredible place to play. But yeah. yeah, through Mel and then I ended up playing with Mel Graves who ran the jazz program at uh, uh in Santa Rosa at, at the college mm -hmm. there and but so I did, and Michael Zilber, great tenor saxophone player mm -hmm. on the Bay Area, lived in the Bay Area. I played with him quite a bit. So there were periods where I did interact and and play with the local musicians. But to make my living, I would travel and go on tour. Right. You know, just use right. it as a home base. So yeah. we, you know, we decided to move. I'd owned my home there since 1982. Wow. So it had appreciated a lot in value. So <laughs> yeah. when we sold it, you know, we, we did really well. I owned it outright, which mm -hmm. is like a, it's a really good thing to do as a musician because it did give me a lot of freedom financially to own the home and not, you know, have to pay maintenance and taxes, but I didn't have to sure. pay a mortgage. And so we decided to uh, take the money and, and live in a couple of different places. Mm. And, and Ashland, we discovered because Diane's daughter, Cassia, went to SOU, Southern Oregon University. And we really liked the town when we would visit. It reminded us of like Marin County 20 years mm. ago. You know, it had a real <laughs> nice feel and, and the, the wine bars and the art galleries and the theater yeah. and all, all of that, the, the record stores. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so we loved it. So, you know, we, we moved in, in bought a home right downtown right on granite right. street and then uh and we bought an apartment in manhattan in the on the upper west side you know we bought a condo mm. in a in a beautiful you know building um you know near near 73rd and broadway so so we had this really nice lifestyle of Again, not playing with local musicians, just being based in Ashland and, yeah. and enjoying the culture and then going to New York and enjoying being in the city. And then me, you know, playing in the jazz clubs or basing myself there for tours like flying to Europe or, yeah. you know, at whatever destination. It was much easier to, to do it there. 
and and the, I'd say, and now we don't live downtown anymore. Like I was telling you, we, we actually live on Mount Ashland. Um, we love the the fact that we can get really great food here, <laughs> really great ingredients, yeah. you know, yeah. for cooking. So the <clears throat> produce uh, is amazing. All this organic you know, gr- food mm-hmm. that we can, that we can get that we really see, uh, that we, it's very hard to get on the East coast hmm. in New York city. You can get it, but it's not f- that fresh and you mm-hmm. have to, you know, go to whole foods or, or fairway or some of the other yeah. you know, places around there. We also eventually bought a place in upstate New York, near Cooperstown, New York, that, uh, where Diane spent her summers as a, as a little girl and she has a you know great feeling for being there so mm. we have a home there on a lake that we like to spend a lot of time there as well not another like beautiful type of place similar to ashland but unfortunately it doesn't measure up when it comes to the <laughs> organic produce and with their shorter growing season and you know they yeah. still you know there's some organic but but not that much but you know, it's so our lifestyle entails moving regularly between three homes. Okay. And there's no set pattern to it. It depends mm. on, well, in the past, it's dependent on my gigs. Yeah. And, and if I, you know, had a long period of being off for like two or three months or something, we may come to Ashland. Uh, mm. But and then if I had, Sometimes I would have back-to-back tours in Europe, you know, and I, I'd be flying to Europe for a week with Mike Stern and then have a few days off and then two weeks with Hiromi and then I, you know, mm-hmm. come back and then go over for a couple of clinics and then come back, you know, and just like, so then we back just live in New York City, yeah, you know, because yeah. then I don't have to fly all the way cross country. So, yeah. so you know, and then what, if we had a little time off, we'd go, go up to the lake house. So at this point now, Last year, we spent the entire summer at the lake house, and we're going to do the same <laughs> this year. So we yeah. get out of the, the fire season, oh, right. uh, unfortunately, yeah. of of this area because, yeah, where we live, it's, it's been dangerous. Diane's, I've been on the road at one summer, and she had to evacuate, you know, evacuate. so we know yeah. about the, you know, that the yeah. dangers now of living in this area. How much of um, this past year with the uh, with uh, COVID and all that influenced where you were in those three places? A lot. And we, we decided it's at a certain point, like, well, I was on tour with vital information in February and March, and then my tours got canceled. And I was Mm -hmm. in Australia actually uh, playing, playing in Melbourne at bird's basement uh, up until the 16th of, and I did a drum clinic on the 16th for a drum <laughs> shop. And then it was probably the last drum clinic in, on the planet. And, <laughs> yeah. and then I came home and, and then, but we had a week in Tokyo and two weeks in China after that, of course, those canceled. So we, mm. we came to Ashland and of course, we, no one knew how long it was all going to last. But um, then for the summer, we decided, let's go to the lake. So we actually spent, you know, all of like July, August, September, October there. Lovely. And then, uh, we came back here for a little while and then we went back to New York for mm-hmm. January and February. We just, 
you know, we just, the New York lifestyle is really interesting. Um, just, <laughs> and bet. it's not like we're going to clubs and theaters or anything, you yeah. know, we can't, but, but one of the things we found being there is I would say the people were 100% compliant. Oh, of, with masks know, and all yeah, that. Yeah. And, and the protocol was so nice, you know, like there was no, bickering with people walking into places like oh you got to put on a mask sir <laughs> you know and, yeah. you know so everyone the people there know how to live in a crowd yeah and so there was a yeah. lot of respect and then it's really easy to get good food delivered to the yeah, apartment yeah. building the apartment building itself had strong protocols and nice. you know with with the elevator like it's a 17 story building you know so and there's six elevators so you know so everyone knows how to live together so it was very comforting and comfortable mm. to be there and easy yeah. and easy yeah. to be there. So, so we just, we came back to Ashland for another month or so, got vaccinated. <laughs> Good <laughs> and, for you. Yeah, yeah. And now, now we'll go back and, you know, for the rest of the, for the entire summer. Is there a community there that you engaged with while you're like of musicians that, that you engaged with while you're back there for January, February? Like as yes. Friends or? Yeah. Lots of like, uh, okay. The, like the guys from vital information, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the latest incarnation, they all live in, in that area. Vinny Valentino, the guitarist, he, he lives mm -hmm. in New Jersey, but he's like 20 minutes away from the city. Mark Soskin, uh, the keyboard player on, on that last mm -hmm. album um, that we did called heart of the city. He lives just 10 blocks from me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so we visit, um, Man, the new keyboard player is named Manuel Valera, okay. and he lives, uh, you know, in in Washington Heights, which is further up yeah. from me. And uh, you know, and um, Carmine Apiece lives a few blocks from me, so we yeah. hung out a little bit. Mike Maneri lives literally across the street. <laughs> wow. I can see his apartment from my window, so yeah. we just run into each other. Every yeah. so often, because, you know, the interesting, another interesting thing about New York is it's a big city, but everyone lives in a small neighborhood. Mm. So you tend to see people like Ron Carter lives at the end of end of my block. And I don't know oh, Ron wow. Carter, but he walks. <laughs> I see him walking by my building. Okay. It's like, hey, there's Ron Carter. <laughs> there's Ron Carter. You know, and it's and you, yeah. you, you have these kind of sightings like that every so yeah. often. And then we run into people that we know pretty frequently and, and then you just mm -hmm. get to know the people in, in your neighborhood and the in the grocery stores and the restaurants yeah. and whatnot and uh so yeah it's it's a really nice lifestyle and 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 i actually did do a couple of gigs really when i was there yes where at at birdland okay for no audience <laughs> Was it streamed or something? Live yeah, streamed? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so uh, I did two gigs in two different bands in one day, and it was it was last September. Okay. And uh, it it was there's a producer, um, Milan Simic, mm -hmm. and Milan organizes gigs, and it's one of my favorite things to do. And what he does is he comes up with a concept, and he'll sell the concept to a club. Generally, Birdland, sometimes the Iridium. Mm -hmm. And I'll just go through like some, some of what uh, the gigs are, have been that I've done with him. One is called Electric Miles, and we've done it 
uh, like four or five times. And, and so that'll be the Miles Davis electric period from mm. 1969 to say 1975. Okay. And, and, and then he'll, he'll write the set list. You're going to play, you know, bitches brew mm -hmm. the theme for, for 10 minutes. And, and then, you know, then segue into another piece and you're going to play 45 minutes and never stop and improvise a segue between <laughs> tunes. And, and in the, in the, in general, the, the band usually is Jeremy Pelt on trumpet and Randy Brecker oh, nice. on trumpet. Oh, and nice. then, uh, um, Lonnie Plaxico on bass and then some various, uh, guitars like Paul Bullenbeck mm -hmm. and, uh, and Steve Cardness, Vinnie Valentino sat in the last yeah. time we did it. So, and then, so it's really interesting. So you have to immerse yourself in the music and really learn the details of that yeah. period. And then, and, um, what was it this time? Those two gigs, uh, th this, this time was a tribute to, uh, Bud Powell and a mm. tribute to John Coltrane. And I the tribute to Coltrane is something we, we do every September at Birdland because of, I think it's the September 23rd is Coltrane's birthday. birthday so it's always, yeah. always around that. And it's always a different lineup every year. And it's always different music every year. This year, the idea was to play the theme of Ascension mm -hmm. with the form of a love supreme, the four tempos of a mm -hmm. love supreme. And it was drums and two saxophones, <laughs> Donnie McCaslin yeah. and Eric Alexander and oh, myself, yeah. and no bass, no keyboards. That one, and so we did that, and it, it was 50, I think I sent you a link of Yeah, yeah, that was I great. Think. It's like 55 minutes of through improv <laughs> improvisation, but with a, with a, a form in mind yeah. to follow the, the architecture of A Love Supreme. And then the Bud Powell tribute was trio with Helen Song on piano and Lonnie Plaxico on bass. And um, that again was, he, he gave us a set list, the exact tunes. And I didn't know all those Bud Powell tunes. Mm. So, you know, I spent two to three weeks beforehand learning the material, writing charts mm. and, uh, and, and that went really well. That one they have shown that, you know, it's a Birdland okay. puts it up. It's like we recorded it for like there was a, a three cameramen and a sound and an engineer in the room and my drum tech. Because I had I had a drum tech like I used two di completely different kits for even though we oh, recorded them both the same day. Yeah. I used a really small jazz kit for the Bud Powell trio idea. And then but for the Coltrane thing. I used a big, my big like rock fusion kit with a gong <laughs> and I, I've integrated yeah. like how to play the gong while I'm playing the kit and, oh, wow. and turned it into this very, you, yeah. know, you know, texturally dense kind of a percussive sound. I've yeah. actually uh, done quite a bit of work without bass players. I did a tour and a record with George Brooks and Prasanna mm -hmm. and Prasanna is a really challenging yeah, yeah, and you know he's a, a guitarist from South India, and George Brooks on on tenor saxophone, and myself on drums. So by playing without bass, I find that I tend to fill up a lot of the low frequencies by playing a lot more on toms, mm -hmm. and just naturally go into a yeah. place where it's like like I'm creating 
something like a bass frequencies and and yeah. bass lines or you know melodic toms and it's a really interesting way to play but you wouldn't necessarily think of it as a drummer unless you played without a bass player right so do you feel more obligated to keep time in that situation since there's no bass player like really no because keeps- i keep time no matter what the situation <laughs> is you know so no there's no more imperative to keep time it's just the way the way that i keep time mm-hmm. might be less symbol oriented and right. more drum oriented you know for right. instance and also that i think i have some of that influence because i have played quite a bit with indian musicians and and you know zakir hussein you know yeah. for instance like i have done quite a bit of playing with Zakir and masters of percussion or different groups and yeah. other, other Indian musicians. Well, one of the in, things that a Western drummer notices interesting about the Indian drummers is they don't use cymbals. Right. So they, so they keep time on, on the drum, you know, the drum itself. And, mm. and uh, so it's very in, in, into a very stark contrast of Western drummers especially jazz drummers keep time on the cymbal, you know, in the hi-hat and the ride cymbal. And so it's a very different concept to Mm -hmm. play, play the drums in and keep time and give, you know, the indications of form and, but minimizing the use of the cymbals, you know, so, so there's, you know, something in between that I do when I play in that situation without a bass. Yeah. I want to get back to the Indian stuff in just a sure. minute, but um, I was curious, like what the what the mood is, or what the how those how those musicians in New York are feeling about the future of New York and playing gigs and all of that. Is there is there hope, or is it kind of like trepidation? Or you know, I don't think I've a- actually asked people, "Do you have hope?" <laughs> <laughs> but People are coming up with ways of dealing with it. Like mm-hmm. Manuel Valera does like a weekly jam session and he's been doing it outside. Like that's one of oh. the things that he's been doing. It's just playing. It's, you know, he had to wait until the weather was warm <laughs> enough. Yeah. And, and so that's one thing. Um, I, you know, I would, I would hope that things would come back around. I mean, Birdland recently did a GoFundMe. Okay. And they did they did very well, you know, to oh, keep nice. the door to keep the doors open. Even though yeah. I know some of the clubs have closed, um, you know, I'm yeah. hoping Birdland will survive, and and some of the other clubs will will survive, and and at a certain point, get back into having live music, even if it's not at full capacity at first. Um, yeah, but but one of the other things that I've I'm learning from you know talking to the working musicians, some of them are working more than ever because of uh, teaching, you know, oh, right. teaching, teaching online and, um, and doing um, music from like recording from home, people mm-hmm. sending tracks yeah, drum for drum tracks or, or whatever, you know, over their instrument onto tracks. So there's a lot of musicians that are, quite busy yeah. doing that kind of work. Have you had any of that 
any of that recording no, stuff over the last I've year? been asked to do that, but I, I'm not interested in doing that. <laughs> I don't have a I don't have a recording studio. Got it. I used to. You know, when I lived in Marin, I had a really beautiful recording studio, and I made dozens of records there. You know, it was really, yeah. really fun. And you know, it was a you know, it was a studio with a two inch, two inch tape. You know, before right. digital. Right. And even when digital happened, I still made most of the records on two inch tape. Though sometimes people would come in and they'd bring their ADATs or whatever was going on at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, when I moved from, from there, I sold all the equipment and I just was done with that part of my life as far as sure. I, it was too much of a hassle to keep it going. And, right. and it was actually in those days, it was pretty expensive. Yeah. Um, but I have a practice room in each one of my residences. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and you've been producing some great videos. Yeah. And so that's, you know, my, my creative outlet these you know for the last year has been making these videos called from the practice room mm. and uh and here in ashland i you know i have a little detached shed <laughs> it's literally a in shed. the woodshed yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and uh i started there like after about a month of being at home i just started recording myself practicing you know different ideas and then i had the idea to call it from the practice room and post it and then one thing led to another and then i bought us i was at just a little zoom camera and then i yep. bought a second zoom camera and then i added my iphone so <laughs> now i'm up to having three sometimes four views nice. of, of something and then i have a film editor that's a really good friend of mine and amazing drummer uh, lives in the south of France, Christian okay. Grissat. So I, oh. I, I make my films and then I send them to Christian and he edits them into really pro looking right. uh, videos. And then, you know, I, I post usually every Saturday, just posted a new one this Saturday. And so I oh. have a practice space at the lake and that looks really different because it's got like bunk beds and you can see all these beds and where the grandkids can stay when they come, you know? And, uh, how do you decide what, what you're gonna, like, are those things you're trying to work on that you're, that, that you put on those videos? Yes. They're, they're whatever I'm working on currently. Okay. And so pr practice wise for the last 30 some odd years, my practice time is, generally full of learning new music that I'm going to be playing mm -hmm. because I'll have a gig, you know, a gig coming up, something to prepare for. Yeah. So my practice time has, doesn't always feel like it's my own time to work on things that I want to work on. Mm. It's, it's, you know, it's preparing for a gig and that's a lot of work, you know, to yeah. get ready depending on what the gig is, but it's generally, you know, a lot of work. I put a lot of time into preparation and in fact, being in a way over-prepared. So I'm to the point where I really am inside the music before I even get to the first rehearsal or first mm -hmm. gig. Yeah. And um, so since being home uh, with lockdown, I don't have any gigs to prepare for. So I had a backlog of things I wanted to work on. 
Mm. you know, ideas. So I just, I'm working my way through different ideas that I want to work on. And then, uh, I found, I went through some, some old boxes and found some of my old drum books that I had when I was a kid. Mm. And one of the books that I really loved was written by Charles Wilcoxon and drummers know about, you know, these Wilcoxon books and they're, they're like, March rudiment, marching rudiments, but written mm-hmm. in a way that sound really great as swing to interp- with swing interpretation. If you mm. play, and they become famous in some ways because um, Philly Joe Jones used to use them okay. to, to come up with a lot of um, his vocabulary that, yeah. that he used when he soloed. So, so they're really, and I ended up making a whole tutorial about how I was working with Wilcoxon, and I made a bunch of videos like that from the Lake House. And then, as it turns out, recently I found out that there's a Wilcoxon Rudimental Challenge Facebook page, <laughs> where, um, the, and that's what it's called, the, the Wilcoxon Rudimental Challenge, and. One of his books is called The All-American Drummer, and it has 150 solos in it. So this Facebook page wants to document all 150 solos. So by the time I heard about it, um, there was only a couple solos that hadn't been recorded. So so the person uh, that runs the page said, okay, solo number 142 and 124. Those haven't been recorded yet. So that's what I decided to work on. So I posted Solo 142 a couple of weeks ago, and just today I posted Solo awesome. 124. So it gives you know it gives me a focus, and yeah, and, and I like that idea of you know it does you can't learn these solos overnight. You know, it took I like I like to work on them for about a week, mm-hmm. just like I did when I was a kid. You know, I had a lesson <laughs> on Monday afternoon, and then here's your lesson, and then you work on it for a week, and then right you play it for the teacher the next next Monday. So I I like that process. Here's Steve with his group, Vital Information, from the Vital Information New York City edition. This is the album Viewpoint, and the tune is Time Check.
notice that what is your practice sessions what do they look like these days and and how long do you practice for uh well the one thing that i strive for is to practice for six days a week okay and and so that that consistency has always worked well for me over the years i like to take sunday off nice and it can be anywhere from a half hour to like three or four hours that i'll spend in the practice room Mm -hmm. and and usually it it's depending on what what i feel as though i need to work on and and want (laughs) to develop and 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 that that changes you know a lot at through has has changed a lot through the years i bet Uh, and you know so so these days uh one of the things that you know if you watch some of these videos and then you know i develop my practice room in in manhattan you know which is Mm -hmm. which is i had to create a a kit with very low volume you know like the low volume kit yeah yeah, low volume symbols and 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 with and there, what I got into was just playing along with Paul Chambers, <laughs> you know, mm. all the the different, you know, the Miles Davis records and all these various records that Paul Chambers played on. And and one of the things I noticed, especially about those recordings, is the mixing was incredible. And a lot of yeah. those records are in mono, but but they sound <laughs> great, probably right. better than a lot of stereo records. So I just and I can and my kit's so so low volume, I can just turn on my stereo crank the volume and play and it's and it's really fun so so that'll be just practicing quarter notes in one way practicing quarter notes that feel good to the walking bass okay just syncing up with the bass and not you're trying to lock in with the bass exactly yeah yeah and then i'm listening to john coltrane or to miles or whoever is soloing over that and 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 then it could branch out into you know phrasing ideas Mm-hmm. So, so some of those videos that I posted, sometimes I'm just playing time throughout, and then sometimes I'm actually just soloing through the whole tune using the pulse of Paul Chambers and then using the melodic, rhythmic information of the soloist to inspire me to, to come up with my own solo simultaneously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not something I would necessarily do on a gig, yeah. but it's a nice way to practice that. And then I'll practice left-handed ride you know, ambidextrous ride, you know, mm-hmm. like getting, and I, cause I, cause I find that's a, the best way I've found for a drummer to work on match grip. Like I'm a, okay. I'm a, I'm a traditional grip trained sure. drummer from mm-hmm. my years starting out, you, you know, holding the left hand, like traditional grip. And, oh, but uh, over the last 10 years, I've wanted to develop more match grip. And I found that the best way to do that is to play the jazz ride simple beat with that left hand because I'm, i you know i figured out that's why my <laughs> right hand is so developed right it's because of the jazz ride simple beat and what it takes to to really play that yeah and one of the ways that i actually got really in touch with how how important that is and what a chops builder it is it's in 2016, I went back on tour with Journey after n- not having played with them for 32 years. Right. right? You know? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and so I went, did this whole tour, which did a lot for my chops, actually. You know, like one of the, one of the reasons I wanted to do it was just to see 
you know, in my 60s, how, how, can I, how would I do playing that music? And I did really well with it. You know, I prepared myself for it. I didn't try to play loud. I just played to get a big sound and to mm-hmm. play with a, with, a, with a nice groove and play the music <clears throat> as I played it originally on the albums. Nice. When the tour was over, after a six-month tour, the next gig that I had was playing with the Bobby Shoe Big Band <laughs> on tour in the Czech Republic, playing the music of Buddy Rich. Wow. <laughs> and my right hand was hurting oh. because I hadn't been playing the jazz ride cymbal beat for six months. And now mm. suddenly I'm playing, you know, you gotta try. And then it's like, oh man. Okay, so now I know what I have to, you know, keep that chop up. Right. Because that is a very individual kind of chop to keep your ride ride cymbal beat up. Yeah, no kidding. And then to do and to also work on it with the left hand to repeat myself has yeah. been the best way to work on that left hand match grip. Yeah. I bet that was really uncomfortable when you first started practicing with the left hand doing the ride. It was. I mean the way that I did it was I played in 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 mirror image symmetry, just both hands playing the exact same thing. Okay. Because that's how I discovered it. It's like I I was like looking at my right hand, the motions that it made, and it you know looked really well trained to me. So I so I wanted to imitate that with the left hand, mm-hmm. and it was really awkward. You know, so I practice in front of a mirror and have both hands play that ride cymbal beat. Wow. So that's you know that's that's a thing to do. That's a yeah. thing to, like to, I can put on records or or a metronome or whatever and just play the ride beat for a long time and play the feet, you know, play the feet, heels down, you know, talk drum technique to play with the heel down on the hi-hat and the heel down on the on the bass drum sure. and to, or to just play quarter notes with all four limbs being really well coordinated. Uh. It's like an independence exercise that's not an independence exercise <laughs> it's a dependent exercise right it's the, but it's step one that is incredibly overlooked mm. like i yeah. i've talked to people that have that did study with tony williams and one of the things that they said tony had him do was play quarter notes in unison with all four limbs and just like one two three four bass drum hi-hat snare drum in ride cymbal with a perfect inner balance. So the bass drum was super light, feathering mm-hmm. they call it. The yeah. ride cymbal was a predominant voice. The left hand on the snare drum was tucked in. And then the, the hi-hat was, you know, chicking along. And <laughs> in, in it's like the, in the proper volume for that. And just right. playing in, in dependent. Totally, right. to, and then from there, it makes sense Expand. to go for it. Yeah. something independent and that would be the first thing would be the jazz ride beat with the right hand right and then some other rhythms with the left hand and sure. then eventually the right foot <laughs> you know so it, it makes so much sense right but in kind general deconstructing people don't think, it yeah people don't generally think about that very fundamental starting point do you listen do you record your well obviously you record some of your practice sessions but do you listen back to them Yes. For your, for your, own. I don't record everything in my practice, but there'll be a point where I want to record it. 
Yeah. And I'll re- listen to it right away. <laughs> Is that painful? I won't wait until the end of the week and listen to it. <laughs> I heard you say that on one of the podcasts. Yeah, that's what I do because it's too painful. The other way, I'm too critical. But here's the thing: you'll spend all week making the same mistakes. (laughs) That's yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, and and you need to self-correct right away. Earlier. Yeah, right, right away. Like, like for instance, like you know, I started and I because it's what I've been doing recently, like working on these Wilcoxon Mm -hmm. solos. They're written out, you know, snare drum solos. So and they're really specific. The sticking. You know, right, left, sticking, mm-hmm. the number of beats in the rolls, and then where the accents are. You know, so I recorded myself the first day I practiced one of those things, and I practiced this at a slow tempo. And then I listened back, and I realized I was accenting certain notes that were not supposed to be accented, <laughs> and I wasn't <laughs> accenting certain notes that were supposed to be accented. Right. You know, but but I want to self-correct that. Yeah. Without getting really into smart. a bad habit like three yeah. days later and, right. and notice it. So I'll so practice, practice, and, I like and that. Then make a recording and then and then like really zero in on how accurate it is, how mm-hmm. how close it is to the written page right. is it. So, um, yeah, so I do a lot of um, recording and it's in video. Like I, I, I've always practiced in front of a mirror. That's one of the things my first teacher had me do and mm-hmm. it, it, and it's really helpful to watch the technique and watch your body and stay relaxed right um and so i do the same thing now with video where for many years as a youngster you know it was just cassette tapes there was right. no vi- no video involved <laughs> but the and the other thing that i do is i actually literally record every gig that i play and and i record and since zoom Re, the zoom recorders with the little cameras yeah and i i record them with you know with a zoom recorder and as they make better ones i i buy the the better sure. ones you know yeah, but, yeah but i really like to do that and i don't always watch the whole gig and many times i just might not watch it or i might just <laughs> d- think about a part where something happened here at this one part right. of this one tune. Let me check on Check that. it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I found that kind of feedback to be super helpful. I bet. I bet. So that first teacher, you said that here's something that surprised me because I, my, my first instrument was actually the snare drum. Uh-huh. And, um, and it was, a, I think it was a Ludwig. It was in this big orange case. And I, my parents lived, quarter mile of bus stop and I had to like lug that thing and they always they made me play on a practice pad which to me wasn't very exciting but you said you practiced on a practice pad for two years yeah how did you sustain that as a child like that's amazing to me it was a different era (laughs) you know it really was it was a different era and so the year was 1963 yeah. And and I have to point out, and it was pre-Beatles. Okay. And, and that's a really important dividing line. Yep. Because pre-Beatles, um, uh, pe- there just wasn't that idea to get a drum set and join a band. Mm-hmm. Th- that happened like a year or so later. <laughs> from, okay. from when I started. The, yeah. Yeah. Because that, that was like a, 
And that was a phenomena that happened. Because before that is if you wanted to play an instrument, we had to learn how to play it. Right. You, you know, you, you get a teacher. You didn't. The idea of being self-taught, it's not, you know, it's not, not unheard of, of course, but it wasn't typical in my experience. Like if you wanted to learn how to play the clarinet, you don't just get one and try to teach yourself. Right, right. Generally speaking, you know. Yep. Uh, where that's different when it comes to guitar, bass, and drums <laughs> after the Beatles. After the Beatles. Yeah. And so somehow, you know, I, you know, I just, I really wanted to play the snare drum. I don't even think it was the drum set. I mean, I like the drum set, but what, what, one of the things that attracted me to drums was the marching bands, the Fourth of Ju- July parades that mm-hmm. I go to, and you, yeah. I'd hear the bass drum. And then the snare drums, and it seemed really exciting. So, and, uh, you know, my mom had uh, certain, there was some Gene Krupa albums in the house, mm-hmm. you know, with Benny Goodman. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she liked drumming. And they bought me a drum set when I was two, but it was like a toy drum set. It probably <laughs> lasted like two weeks or something. <laughs> right. But, you know, but ap- after that, I, I didn't have any drums. So when I decided I, there was a school assembly in, in the fourth grade, and you could choose an instrument, and I chose the drums. Well, that actually meant the snare drum. Yeah. And and then uh, my parents had me go to a private teacher. There was, like, the, the band director was teaching some snare drum, but he wasn't a drummer, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I could, they could tell right away it wasn't going to be that helpful. So I found a, they found a teacher for me that was in Brockton, Mass., where my dad worked at the Brockton Enterprise, a newspaper. And we lived in Whitman, which was the next little town. And this is about 25 miles south of Boston. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out this teacher, Billy Flanagan, was an amazingly good teacher for me. And I studied with him from the fourth grade all the way through graduating high school. And, and he had me just play on a practice pad. So I got a, a pad, a pair of sticks, and an elementary drum book and started playing. Wow. And started reading music from the first quarter note that I played. Wow. Uh, so reading and playing were always connected from, you know, from the first yeah. note. So um, that helped that become quite natural to read and play. Yeah. And so for two years, it was practice pad, but I don't know. It just was fun. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, cool. I, I didn't think anything of it. It was just yeah. normal. Yeah. And then he told my folks, okay, he's ready for a snare drum. <laughs> you know, so then I got a snare drum. You graduated to the snare to the drum. the snare drum. So for about a year, you know, I played the snare drum. And then finally, you know, for Christmas, I, I got a my first Rogers drum set, you know, which was yeah. a bass drum, a rack tom, a floor tom, and a snare drum. Nice. No cymbals even. Right. You know? And then I worked <laughs> delivering newspapers for the Brockton Enterprise and, and saved up money for a high, pair of hi-hats and a ride cymbal. Nice. So, was, yeah, was, it, it was just a different time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. It was a different time, so it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't like pre-Beatles, like today, yeah. or even <laughs> yeah. a few years later. Yeah, like when I first saw Ringo on the Ed Sullivan show, I thought, well, that guy doesn't even know how to hold his sticks, <laughs> you know. But but that, like, from my perspective, as like a nine or ten year old little jazz snob, right? I wasn't alone in that. Right? Was he doing Match Grip? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All those British drummers <laughs> at that time. 
played, except for Mitch Mitchell played, you know, mm-hmm. he played traditional group, Jimi yeah. Hendrix is drummer most of the time. But, but, you know, there was this trend transition period and, you know, just to get into, I don't know, we shouldn't go that cause it gets too drum, just yeah, drum oriented. Yeah. <laughs> was that teacher the one, was he the one that taught you sight reading and had you do a lot of sight reading or was that a later yes. teacher? No, that was Billy Flanagan. That was that teacher. Like every week he'd, he'd put music in front of me it, or it would be just like next week's lesson and mm-hmm. have me sight read it. Okay. You know, and he, and he just, he taught me some really valuable skills. Like the most, like number one, once you start, never stop. <laughs> Keep going. You know, once you start reading this page, do not stop. No matter how many mistakes you made. Mm. That's great. And, and re, you know, read ahead. Yeah. You always like try to read a bar, a couple bars ahead. And, and when it ends, I mean, that's like really <laughs> especially important when you're sight reading with a band. Yeah. And if you, you know, you make a mistake and then you try to look back and then you lose your place and then the drummer keeps playing and the, and the band stops and right. the drummer keeps playing. You know? Right. You know, so that idea of once you start, never stop and just keep your place, even if you don't play any yeah. of the figures right, right, is crucial. You know, that's a real good <laughs> basic concept for sight reading. Right. Have you ever had to sight read a gig? Yes. Yes. And, and, and at this point, I probably wouldn't do that great at it because I don't re- I don't have that much practice with it anymore. Yeah. I had the yeah. most practice of it when I was in college, you know, when yeah. I went to Berkeley and and I was doing a lot of reading. And then a lot of the gigs I was doing around that time had had books, you know, mm-hmm. charts. And, yeah, yeah. And 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 like my audition for Jean-Luc Ponty was about playing with odd in on time signatures with him, but also reading, sight reading his charts. And and I sight read them some pretty hard stuff without any mistakes. But my reading was real up and I think my adrenaline was really up <laughs> <laughs> at that point too. Right. So you that's how long was that um that audition with, with him? How long was it? It was probably you, twenty minutes or something. Twenty minutes. Like yeah. yeah, it was yeah, I was just a you know go over that a little bit it's um i was in my seventh semester uh-huh. of, of berkeley i went to berkeley from 72 to 76 but i was interrupted a couple i took a couple semesters off somewhere okay. somewhere yeah. in between and uh, but i was in my seventh semester and um i had been i met a lot of great musicians there and one of one of them was a bass player jeff berlin Mm-hmm. And I was playing a lot with Jeff. He had since left Berkeley and moved to New York. And he was got, had been in touch with Jean-Luc Ponty's manager, who called him and said, Jean-Luc wants you to play bass while he comes to New York to audition drummers, because he needs a drummer. And, and Jean-Luc had just recorded an album called Imaginary Voyage with the drummer Mark Cranny playing drums. Mm-hmm. And then there was a tour that was going to start in a, in a few days. And Mark quit, like last minute, quit Jean-Luc Ponty's band, and he joined Tommy Boland's band. Hmm. So Jean-Luc 
did a cattle call audition in LA and then he came to New York for a cattle call audition. And since Jeff and I were friends and Jeff knew my playing, he recommended that I be one of the drummers to do an audition. So I, you know, I went to, drove down to New York um, and it was at a rehearsal studio. There was at least seven or eight of us all sitting in the hallway and one at a time we went in and it was a rental kit and it was trio, it was violin, bass and drums. And uh, I read it, read some charts. We jammed in seven and we jammed in five, you know, to mm -hmm. make sure you know, could play in odd times. And then that was it. And he said, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that night, you know, and I stayed at Jeff's apartment. Yeah. I got a call later that night from John Luke. And he said, well, can you be in LA in two days? <laughs> Something like yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that, and and you and basically you got the gig because you can read, and yeah. I you know I need somebody that could learn how learn my music in four days, and uh, so I convinced my parents that it was a good thing to do to postpone to quit your school, yeah, and and move, and, and move to yeah or go to LA. It wasn't moving to LA. It was just go to LA rehearse for a couple of days with Jean-Luc Ponty and go on the road, you know? So that was a, like, it was a really big deal. I was 22 years yeah. old. I was pretty yeah. young. I had played a lot of, a lot of gigs around Boston. I had played in a lot of big bands. I played with this very good big band called the Lynn Bibiano big band. It was mm -hmm. made up of alumni of uh, Buddy Rich and Maynard Ferguson players. And Lynn himself played a lot with Buddy and, Maynard and so that that was like just touring around the Midwest and the East Coast. Uh, so I had never been to LA, and you know that was just. Do you like remember a, that first gig, the first gig with John Luponti? I I I remember the first. Well, actually, no, but I do have a, there. The second gig is on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. the first. Let me think what. The, so so just to go through that, like it was kind of like magical getting off. The, the plane at LAX and seeing palm trees and that was your that first weather. time in LA. Yeah. And it was like kind of <laughs> mind blowing. And then, um, and going to a rehearsal at a big, you know, SIR and, and the band was so powerful and I had mm. played mostly jazz and big band and small group and yeah. fusion was a thing in the air. There was a lot of fusion, <laughs> you know, going, but, but it hadn't trickled down to like, you know, gigs, local yeah, gigs, yeah. Right? you know, so I hadn't really played much fusion. So I was like learning just how to, to play that style by doing it, yeah. by being. And, and one of the things I'll say about, I think what band leaders look for when they audition people is someone that has a potential to grow into the gig. Yeah, because whoever is like like completely a master of that gig is probably either too expensive or going to have their own band. Right. You know, like he he could have he wasn't going to hire Lenny White. Yeah. Fresh out of Return to Forever or Billy Cobham out of the Mob Vishnu Orchestra. So, you know, so yeah. he needed a drummer that potentially could grow in, into that kind of music music. And yeah. I think he saw that in me. And, and so that's what I applied myself to do. Yeah. And so, you know, I was in, in the band was Tom Fowler on bass, right? And, and right out of the Frank Zappa, he was, you know, right. he was with Zappa right before that. And Alan Zavod on keyboards, who had played with Maynard. I saw him play with Maynard. And then 
Daryl Sturmer on guitar, really great, fantastic uh, guitarist. And so we we practice the tunes um, that we, you know, Jean Luc wanted mm-hmm. to play on the tour, which was he only had about two or three albums out at the time, right? And, and Imaginary Voyage and Aurora. So we played our first first gig was probably a club gig somewhere, which I don't remember. But the second gig was for Soundstage. And Soundstage was like a PBS show that was recorded in Chicago in front of a live audience. But then it was played on PBS. Right. And and, uh, um, it's an amazing thing that I wish they still did things like that. (laughs) Right, yeah. Because if you look at, for like Soundstage of that year, it was 1976. It was October I believe 1976, you, you can see Herbie, Herbie Hancock headhunters with, you know, Mike Clark and Paul Jackson mm. and, you know, all, all of these in Chick Corea, uh, uh, return to forever. Yeah. And, and this, my second gig was Sean Luponti, uh, <laughs> with that band. And yeah, I was pretty scared, you know, I, I, bet. <laughs> I was way out of my element, but I, I just put my head down and played and I, I did a good job and you can see it. Nice. <laughs> the, the evidence is there. So like I hadn't seen it for years and years and it was just in, in like distant memory. And somehow, you know, somebody posted it on YouTube and I saw it. I was like, mm. oh, not bad, right. <laughs> you know, right. not too bad, but, but cool. um, yeah. Let's listen to Steve playing with Jean-Luc Ponty from the album Enigmatic Ocean. This is Enigmatic Ocean Part 2. talking about we were talking about buddy rich and maynard and that this just jog jog my memory that um this andy fusco who you've played with he was with buddy buddy rich's band he was he was and, a lead alto player for five years yeah yes. and did you meet him playing in that big band that you were just mentioning no a few minutes ago okay no how i i'm and um, unfortunately uh, Andy died of COVID complications on April yeah. 5th. Yeah, it's very tragic. Uh, 2021, yes. And, and he'd been sick for a long time with mm. COVID, like about a year. Yeah. Um, you know, how I, how I met Andy was in 1993. Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush, wanted to produce an album 
with the Buddy Rich Big Band, hmm. play, you know, playing Buddy's charts and, and having about 20 some odd guest drummers play on the album. And, and he did it. And it's, and it's a great uh, volume one, volume two called Burning for Buddy on Atlantic Records. And, you know, and, and I played on it and Dave Wecko and Simon Phillips and Joe Morello and, mm. you know, Steve, uh, no, Steve Gadd wasn't on, on that album, but, but lots, lots of Greg Bissonette. I think there's yep. a lot of very good musicians and, um, and it was at that time, really the Buddy Rich band, yeah. meaning like guys, all guys in that band had played with him because Buddy had died only a few years before that. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was when I met Steve Marcus, who is the tenor soloist, and Andy Fusco, who was the lead alto player. And, you know, it's, it was, you know, a, a you know great time and there's a mm. vid there's a video of that too like oh, that sweet. that was filmed and you could see that uh probably find those performances online and shortly after that uh the buddy rich big band did some touring with me playing drums and dave Weckel playing drums mm. so we did like some east coast touring in a Greyhound bus <laughs> with all those guys in that wow. band. And, and Dave and I would each split the night. Okay. You know, we'd, we'd each do a set. And it was awesome. It was really <laughs> fantastic. And during that time, Kathy Rich and came up with the, and Steve Arnold, who was her mate at the time, decided to start this group called Buddies Buddies. Mm-hmm. And, and and buddies buddies would have been were mainly Steve Marcus and Andy Fusco, yeah. And then uh, you know then uh, and then a rhythm section. So they asked me to do it because they just felt like I would be qualified to do it. You know somehow <laughs> yeah. like yeah, yeah. you know the, the the feel was right. You know the energy was right. So we had a a few incarnations of that first group, and one of them I just posted. Uh, yeah, I some, saw that. You know, yeah, was... with Will Lee on bass and Joel Weisskopf on, on keyboards. We also did, as part of this tour, we had John Patitucci on bass and Lee Musiker on piano. And that, that group was pretty smoking. Wow. And then we actually went into this and in, in made an album, recorded an album. We got Anthony Jackson on bass because he had played with Buddy. Mm -hmm. and And then... And we had Lee Musiker on piano because he had played with Buddy. So right. everyone in the band had played with Buddy except for me, of course. <laughs> right. You know, but I saw all of them play. In fact, sure. I even saw Anthony Jackson play with Buddy because at that point, there was a, a jazz club in New York City called Buddy's Place. <laughs> and I went there when I was a kid. Mm. And I went to New York and, and saw Buddy Rich play. Wow. And, and Anthony was the bass player. That must so, have been amazing. It was, it was, it was thrilling. And so then, you know, we, we played, we made that album. And then I, we ended up doing a lot of touring through the years. We made two live records at Ronnie Scott's and, and it was just a thrill to play with those guys. They were very, very strong players, mm -hmm. rhythmically, you know, powerhouse yeah. players. Cause they were used to playing with Buddy Rich. Who, <laughs> yeah. He was a freight train, you know, like a freight train. So to play with those guys, it was, it was, you know, very intense. And, and the time always felt 
really great, really sweet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was a thrill. And then to talk about, you know, stories, because we would drive around in vans or, you know, travel together and they never ran out of stories. <laughs> they just never <laughs> ran out of story, Buddy Rich story. And it was always hilarious, you know, to hang out with those guys. I bet. I bet they had tons of stories to tell. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a loss uh, for sure. He's yes. such a dynamic uh, saxophonist and jazz musician. We, we will miss miss him greatly. Yes, indeed. Um, I wanted to ask about so the tour that you were on with uh, where it was Van Halen was the opener <laughs> right. and Journey was the closer, and you were with. Ronnie, I'm going to mispronounce his last Ronnie name. Montrose. Ronnie Montrose. Ronnie Montrose yeah. band. I'm right. just curious, like, what was that, like, that kind of mind-blowing that, was it, was it David Lee Roth, was he in Van Halen at that point, or was of it? Course, yeah, of course. Yeah, so it, what was it like? It was like? their very first tour that they ever did. Right, so what was, what was that, was, was it, first of all... Well, let me just give you some, yeah. bit, again, context, a little bit of more context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, um, so I had left Berkeley in 76, played with Jean-Luc Ponty all the way through 1977 on tour with him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I, and I didn't really have a, a place to live. Like in between tours, I'd go back to my parents' house, you know, like, because <laughs> okay. we were on tour with Ponty a lot, you know, right. and, and I gave up my apartment in Boston and just, you know, went on, went on tour. And, and so um, I got, <laughs> this is a whole nother story we could get yeah. into, but, but I got fired at the end of my year. Oh no! Uh, with with, with Daryl Sturmer and Jamie Glazer, the three of us. But but you know, he later called all three of us back. It was just yeah, dumb, one of those dumb kid, dumb shit, side <laughs> yeah, sideman stuff. Like when you're young and really haven't figured out. Mm. Like I'll 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 say like because I've heard you ask like what would you tell tell yourself the earlier you, self? Yeah, what would yeah. you say to Steve back then? Yeah, do not develop a habit of talking behind the band leader's back <laughs> you know do not be a disgruntled yeah. sideman that complains about stupid stuff right you know like be really grateful for the gig and just do the gig and play great every night and be thankful that you're there and yeah. take advantage of it you know but we were you know we were young and you know there was a little there was a little grumbling and and the three of us would kind of grumble and of course the band leader's gonna sense that and know that and just be like i don't need this (laughs) right you guys are out of here you know (laughs) and then anyway um i learned a great lesson from that and and it's but it's it's a thing that happens a lot in a lot of bands unfortunately yeah but I've had the very good fortune to be in some bands that that doesn't exist at all. And the vibes are always much, much better mm. when, when there's this camaraderie and no talking behind the back of, yeah. of members of the group. That's yeah. a real vibe killer. Sure. It, it really is. So I'd recommend do not get <laughs> do in not that do habit. That. Yeah. <laughs> Note <laughs> so, to self. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so uh, 
So I needed a gig and a thing to do. So I moved to L.A. because the people that I had met uh, while working with Ponty were based in L.A. Right. You I know, was curious why you didn't go to New York instead of L.A. But that yeah, I just I that. just you know, and that's a good question. And, then, and the only answer is that I just knew more people in L.A. Yeah. At that point. And yeah. so David Wilczewski, who was a great tenor sax player that was in Vital Information and for many years, helped me start Vital Information. He was my friend that lived in uh, the Boston area. He said, yeah, let's go to, let's just move to L.A. So we got in our cars. <laughs> we moved to L.A. We moved in with the road manager that used to, what's Jean-Luc Ponty's road manager. He had a, mm-hmm. he had a room. It was 90 bucks in, a month for the room. It was in Hollywood. And Dave and I just like lived in that one room and split 45 bucks a month and paid rent <laughs> and then looked for gigs, Right. started doing auditions. And as it turned out, John Luke Ponty was also managed. He, his manager, Michael Davenport, also managed Freddie Hubbard. Though Freddie was looking for a drummer. So do you want to ask, do you want to audition for Freddie Hubbard? I said, hell yeah, that sounds great. Of course, so, I, yeah. so I went down and and auditioned and got the gig and it was a you know it was a it was a really really great i think larry klein was a bass player and Mm. i don't remember hadley calliman you remember that name no he was the tenor player okay and um and then and then i also heard about an audition for ronnie montrose now ronnie montrose was a guitarist that had a band called montrose sammy hager was the lead singer and they okay. were they were like the U.S. Led Zeppelin. Okay, you know, leads the blonde lead singer with a yeah. high voice and and a real and the drummer Denny Carmasi sounded a lot like John Bonham, and Bill Church was a strong bass player and Ronnie Montrose was like a powerhouse guitar player. Mm-hmm. But Ronnie wanted to do something different and he wanted to be like Jeff Beck and have an instrumental rock band. Okay. You know, and play instrumental jazz, no, rock fusion. I wouldn't call it jazz, you know, because he was not a jazz musician. He was a rock guitar player. Yeah. So he wanted to play, you know, a rock. So I heard about that audition and I went to San Francisco. He was managed by Bill Graham and, and in the Bay Area. And I got that gig. <laughs> so so then, you got two gigs. <laughs> two gigs. So what do you, you know, so I had to make a decision. And, and so my decision was... While I played with Jean-Luc Ponty, and if you see like the, the gig I described, Soundstage, the second gig, mm-hmm. my drum set was like a, a small Gretsch jazz drum kit. Right. And then, but a, a couple months after that, Jean-Luc said, can you get a Billy Cobham kit? And I wish I could do his French accent. But what he <laughs> meant by that was, can you get a big double bass kit, like right. a Billy Cobham, big, huge kit? So I said, oh yeah, sure, I can do that. So then... January 1977, I bought my first set of sonar drums, you know, two 24-inch bass drums, three rack toms, Mm -hmm. a 16-inch and an 18-inch floor tom, huge drum set. And then I went back on tour with Ponty, and then I was up a level of, you know, rock fusion, powerhouse (laughs) drumming. And I was really getting into it and really having fun. And, like, we played on – we started in clubs, but by that year, we were playing theaters. We were playing like for 1,500 people, 2,500 people. You know, fusion was pretty popular. It was yeah. like you were kind of like rock stars. You know, there was a real vibe about it. There was sound and lights. And, mm-hmm. um, so I loved playing the big drum kit and playing in that powerhouse way. So 
okay, I have to do it all today, right now, I'd play with Freddie Hubbard. You would have played with Freddie. Now, right now. <laughs> right in now, present today, yes. Day, you know, of course. <laughs> but what it would have meant is going back to the little grit the small drum kit. set, yeah. acoustic bass, Fender Rhodes piano, maybe, you know, and yeah. playing in, in a, a real different kind of way that I had been moving into this double bass fusion that felt really fun. Mm-hmm. And that's what Ronnie Montrose wanted me to do. He right. wanted me to play like balls out fusion right. <laughs> and rock. So I, I think that's the way I want to go. Plus, I had never worked with a professional rock musician. Uh-huh. Everyone that I'd ever worked with was a jazz musician. Right. Even if I was playing a pop gig in Boston. It was just jazz guys playing a pop gig. Playing a pop gig. Pop gig. Yeah. P-O-P. You yeah, know? yeah, no, yeah. I got it. I got yeah, it. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like pop musicians, you know. Sure. It's it just, uh, so, you know, so I didn't do Freddie Hubbard. And ended, ended up, I think, my friend Dave Wilczewski ended up working with Freddie Hubbard mm. during that time. Um, but, so, so Ronnie Montrose had yeah. a tour and it was that that tour that you just said. It was a three month tour. It was Journey's first headline tour because Steve Perry had just joined the group, and they had made the album called Infinity. Mm-hmm. And Journey f- had been together for five years, and they were always an opening act. And right. and this was their first headline tour, and so the opener, which usually is, gets about thirty five minutes, uh, you know, time. Was right. Van Halen, and then the right. second band, which gets something like fifty-five minutes, was Ronnie Montrose, and then the headliner. They probably did it like ninety minutes. Journey 90 minutes. did ninety ninety yeah. minutes, and so we toured for three months together. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, like always. You know, just every pretty much every day together. Interestingly, that first tour, Journey was playing the same theaters I had played with Jean Luc. So Journey mm-hmm. wasn't huge. At that yeah. point. They were just just getting started. They were, right. you know, it was a big deal that they were playing for 1,500 people or 2,000 right. people. And so it would, was... Would all the bands hang out together? Would you guys like... I did. I hung out with all the bands. <laughs> Not necessarily all the guys hung out together, but, you know, I was now, you know, all of 23 years old. Mm-hmm. And it was super fun and exciting. Yeah. And... and and I enjoyed watching those bands every night, you know, because yeah. I like to warm up and I'd get a pad and sit on the side of the stage and I'd watch Van Halen. And I mean, Eddie Van Halen, again, you know, in context, he, he kind of blew everyone's mind. Sure. <laughs> Nobody played guitar like that before him. I mean, there were right. some incredible players. Yeah. Like, you know, like Alan Holdsworth. Yep. You know, who... who I had the good fortune to play with, with John McPonty, you know, and, and, um, and John McLaughlin, you know, and, and all, and then of course other, like from another era and like Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton. And, but when Eddie Van Halen come out, came out, it was singular, you know, the way, the way he played. And also he was a, I don't think he got enough credit for it, a powerful rhythm guitar player, like huge, Mm rhythm guitar player like the yeah. sound of that band was so big right because of that i think and were they the, were just over the top and david yeah. lee rock was you know <laughs> over the top and they were they were over the top backstage and on stage you know it, they were fun right and alex was fun i enjoyed hanging with alex that's cool so it wasn't and, really competitive between the bands it was pretty it, 
I would say it might have been competitive in the minds of the guitar players. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't for me. Right. You know, it wasn't competitive for me at, at all. And and then wow. Ainsley and I became buddies. You know, I really, nice. I mean, Ainsley Dunbar is the one of the, you know, the a drummer that I had listened to. He was a, a drummer of the era of some of the my favorite British rock music. Mm. You know, he's from the era of Ginger Baker and, and Mitch Mitchell. Right. And, and Bonham and all, all those drummers. And, you know, he played in a kind of style that I really get, you know, it's yeah. a really jazz informed rock, rock drumming. And yeah. we'd even get together and warm up together on a couple of pads, you know, before, <laughs> before our gig. That's so, awesome. And I really, and, and I, I liked listening to journey every night. I thought, you know, these for rock musicians. These guys are really good. You know, there was like something about them, yeah. right? They, they, you know, really some great playing. And the music they played was um, the music of the album Infinity, but they also played a lot of music from their earlier records, which was pretty progressive, yeah. odd time signatures and instrumental tracks. And hmm. I don't know if you heard any pre Steve no, Perry I haven't heard journey. Much pre there's, yeah, there's three albums before Steve Perry joined, and Greg Raleigh was the singer. Mm -hmm. And but but I'd say about half of the music was instrumental, and, yeah. and influenced in some ways by the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Right. You know, in some in just in a peripheral, peripheral kind of way, way. it's like yeah. you know playing like in seven or in ten or <laughs> things like that. So. So it was, yeah, it was a very fun and interesting tour. Yeah. And then that led to you obviously joining Journey. Yes. Because of that relationship. And I was just watching, uh, I don't know what tour it was. It was something, it was something on YouTube and it showed like, it was like a behind the scenes thing with like all these tractor trailers and it showed you just going crazy and um, just how physical that gig had to have been for you and on your body. I, I'm curious how how you <laughs> how you took care of yourself or how you could maintain that like night after night. That just seems like a such a workout. Yeah, that. Well, that you know, I was. I was in that group from the time I was in 24 to 30. Right. You know, the, 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 that's the, the, the time that I spent and made, you know, made all those albums yeah, those during that records. time and, and those tours. Yeah. And, and I played really hard and, and <laughs> definitely played loud. And, you know, I was young enough where I didn't get injuries at that time. Mm-hmm. Definitely got injuries later, <laughs> but not at that time. And yeah. again, what would I tell myself <laughs> if I could go back? You don't need to play that loud. You don't need to hit that hard. <laughs> it really didn't accomplish what I thought it was accomplishing. Right. Because the drums sound good at a certain velocity, but anything beyond that is just a waste of energy. Oh, yeah. And in fact, can compromise the sound. Oh. You know, like there's a point where the, the a drum will resonate and it will sound its mm -hmm. best right and if you go beyond that it's pointless right so yes uh yeah i did 
did play really hard and and beat myself up and you know i'd wait sometimes we'd we'd play these sports arenas and the dressing room <laughs> would be like there'd be a scale you know for the athletes so i get on the scale before and after the gig and i'd lose four or five pounds oh my god steve th- throughout the gig but just wow. you know sweating it sweating. just sweat sweating it sweating it off wow but let's say on the other hand the touring that i did you know from 2016 to 2019 mm-hmm. most of the time i don't even didn't break a sweat wow and it's because i knew how to play the drums in a yeah. way that i got a big sound like it's it, it's Without not bashing. The, the drums are loud already right. and you don't need to try to make them louder you just want them to sound full yeah and to have the balance in between the limbs correct and in and in rock and roll you want the bass drum to be the predominant voice mm-hmm. you bring the snare drum back a little bit from that and then the cymbals are are even back from that mm. in in level and then the toms you want the toms to come out when you play your fills and you want the crashes to come out but you don't want to play the cymbals so loud that it thins out the sound of the bass drum mm. So the the loudest voice in a cymbal crash is still the bass drum, but but there's the punctuation in the crash cymbal. So it doesn't mean you have to hit it very hard. Right. And, and this is things that takes many years Maturity. sometimes to yeah. figure out. Right. And so once I figured that out, I could stay really relaxed and and play that music and have it sound as good as an album, as good as a as a record, because that's the way I, I play in the studio too. You know, I've trained yeah. myself how to get the maximum sound in in the studio where people can get a good sound from the overheads. And you know, one of the reasons a lot of engineers, you know, <laughs> they don't even use overheads on drummers is because people play the cymbals too loud. Right. And <laughs> in, in, you know, in playing rock. It's just yeah, yeah. And it's annoying and it gets in all, all the other mics. Leads I mean, and all the other mics. Yeah, yeah. So you can you learn how to control that after a while. Yeah. And and the the journey sound mixer, Mo, who I worked with from uh, 2016 to 2019, really appreciated that, <laughs> you know, and was very appreciative of, of the sound I was getting. That's so cool. yeah, but to go back to what you're saying, yeah, I I beat myself up pretty bad, and and they called you animal. Is yeah, that true? was that from <laughs> yeah. the Muppet Show or was yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just that kind of over the top. Yeah, that's know. funny. And and then there's the adrenaline factor of being sure. in front of all those people and and how exciting it is. And and it's re- it's really different when you don't have in-ears in. Okay, in those days, you know. You didn't have in-ears. No in-ears, just a monitor blasting behind (laughs) me, you know. (laughs) And the stage was loud. Yeah. And and the audience was loud. Yeah. Like super loud. And, you know, it's kind of uh, interesting. Like, so, again, coming back to, you know, Journey recently – um, everything's within ears, you know, so the stage volume's not that loud, you know, because uh, uh, you could hear yourself you through hear. the in-ears yeah. and you can barely hear the audience. Well, there was a couple times where something would fail, you know, like while we were touring and, and like, you know, the in-ears didn't work yeah. or something. And, and so I had to take them off. It was like shocking. <laughs> it was shocking. <laughs> How loud it was. 
how loud it was and how loud the audience was. It wow. was like, oh my God, this, let me put these things back in. Yeah. So, but you know, but going from Journey, and I left in 1985, and then my next gig was Steps Ahead. Right. 86. That was a, yeah, that was a really big change and wake up call about playing that loud and that hard. Yeah, I and was I just, learned that I I had to develop a lot more finesse to to play uh, with with those musicians and to you know get my technique back to a point where I had a, a lot more dynamic range in my playing. Yeah, that's one of my favorite steps ahead. That live nineteen eighty six live in Tokyo. Live in Tokyo. Wow, what a what an amazing set. How how did how did you get that gig? I was doing a lot of clinics after leaving Journey in 1985. There was a high demand for me to do clinics. Was, <laughs> sure. You know, people had been, like Zildjian and Soner had been asking me for years to do clinics, but I never had the time to do them. Yeah. Because Journey was a, like a round the calendar, round the clock gig. And, you yeah, know, you all just, consuming. All can totally consuming, so I suddenly had some time to do clinics. So I was out uh, doing drum clinics, and and it just so happened I did a clinic in Philadelphia, and Peter Erskine was on was doing a clinic, and Lenny White was doing a clinic, and oh, Ken wow. with Denard and Jerry Brown. It was a whole lot of drummers that I knew, you know. Yeah, and we were all hanging out backstage, <clears throat> and. And Peter was talking about that, well, I quit Steps Ahead. I'm going to go back with Joe Zawinul. Joe started a new group called uh, Weather Update. <laughs> it wasn't the syndicate. It was Weather Update. So it okay. was like Weather Report without Wayne Shorter. Wayne Shorter, sure. And, and he joined Joe to do that group. And Lenny White goes, yeah, I, I, know, you, I know you left because – they called me to do it, and but I couldn't do it. I had to turn it down because I'm too busy. <laughs> and of course, I said, "Well, I need a gig." <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I, and I love Steps Ahead. Yeah, you know, it was one of my like going back to before they were called Steps Ahead to Steps, Steps smoking yeah. in the in the pit with with Steve Gadd on drums. Yeah, and then and then the Steps Ahead records, like I just. I loved every every one of them and yeah. thought, you know, that was a really in, incredible group and a very cool way, way of playing jazz fusion. You know, it was like it's its you know, own unique concept. Yeah, very unique. So, so Lenny White said, all right, I'll, I'll call Mike Maneri and Mike Brecker and tell them that you want the gig. And he actually did. <laughs> Because I, I had known Lenny White uh, because from for a long time with um, when I was with Jean Luc Ponty, Lenny White was his band was the opening act. Okay. So it was Lenny White's solo group, and uh, and we got to be friends and hang out, and and I was a nice. huge fan of his, you yeah. know, from the Return to Forever. So the next day, I was doing a clinic in Washington D.C. at a music store, and somebody from the store said, Michael Brecker's on the phone for you. 
And of course, it's one of those. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, but I went and it was and it was like, we want you to come to New York and join the band. I said, you want me to audition or anything? Nope. We just want you to come to New York and join the band. And then Mike Maneri called me right mm. after that, said the same thing. So wow. I finished the clinic tour and went to New York and I had to learn a lot of music. Yeah, I bet. In a short amount of time. And I didn't really know the music. Because it's one thing listening to this music, but yeah. it's another thing to play the music. Yeah. And they had a new record called Magnetic. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't played that music live. They had made the album, but hadn't played the music. So um, that's what we got into. And and it was, in a way, it was a, you know, it, it made sense for me to be in the band at that point and play the way that I played, because I was still playing pretty big and yeah. kind of loud. But but that music, that's what they wanted. And I think it was one of the reasons that Peter left the band, because he oh. didn't really want to play like that. Sure. And there was electro like they wanted electronics on the drums. Like mm -hmm. I had Simmons pads and triggers. You know, I had to like get up to speed with that. Like Mike Maneri had a, uh, had a vibes tech that was able to electrify his vibes right and and so that same tech was able to electrify my drums. drums and then i had a rack like a refrigerator like dave weckles started doing that with the electric band right around that time yeah and then it became like this thing the you thing. know you show up with your refrigerator full of full of gear and your drums had triggers on them yeah and Barker was we playing had, the Ewe. The Ewe, and and we had um, Daryl Jones yeah, on bass, who was unbelievable. You know, and he had just played with Miles, Miles. and then Sting. Yeah. yeah, he had toured with Sting, and then and and Victor Bailey actually played a, a lot of gigs with us oh, too during that okay. time. And then and then Mike Stern on guitar. Yeah, but Mike and I now we had known each other since about 1973. Because we were students together at Berkeley, and at we Berkeley. used to play together then. And he's he's on my uh, first Vital Information record, yeah, and and also uh, the fourth one. He, you know, so we we have a, had a long history together. So, you know, we were real comfortable playing together. But what what a thrill, you know, to, yeah. to be in that group, and that was a, a powerhouse group, and and you know, yeah. I'm. I'm thrilled that i could that i did that and yeah. that i had that experience and and you know i and i learned a lot you know really learned a lot and and from that experience and you know like one thing i'll i'll share you know some things that, yeah. that i got out of that is when i was with journey during you know especially during the later well during the whole time mm -hmm. like uh, i said earlier that I had never worked with professional rock musicians. And that was one of the reasons I'd want to play with Ronnie Montrose. Well, actually I'd never really worked with professional vocalists before. Okay. I played with, you know, worked with Steve Perry, um, you know, occasional singers on yeah. gigs, you know, but they were like jazz singers or, yeah. you know, there's a whole different thing. So, so working with, you know, the guys in journey again, they could sense that I had the potential to grow into the gig. I was by no means a master of that kind of drumming then. Yeah. 
you know, and I really applied myself to learning how to play that kind of music and specifically for, for them, for those individuals. And Steve Perry used to be a singing drummer. So he would give me a lot of input and I found it helpful actually. That's you know, cool. Yeah. That he would, cause he wanted a certain kind of a feel and he really wanted like an R and B rock kind of feel. So it would still be rocking, but have some kind of undertone of rhythm and blues mm. to it. And, you know, he could, he could demonstrate that to a degree, you know, his, he didn't have yeah. chops on the drums, but he had enough ability to play a groove and, Give me some direction if I, something I was doing really didn't resonate with him. But he, but you know, he tended to be kind of micromanaging, hmm. and, and, and you know, gave me a lot of lot of input. And sometimes after gigs, and you know, <laughs> anyway, I was in a, in in somewhat of a mindset of you know people giving me a lot of yeah. micromanaging details. Yeah. And so when I started playing with Steps Ahead. I just went to Michael Brecker and it said, is there anything that you want to tell me? You know, like, like give me some feedback. And he goes, what? No. <laughs> he says, I hired you because I just want you to play the drums and do what you're doing. I got enough trouble playing the saxophone. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, so he just was yeah. not about to like yeah. give me any, any kind of micromanaging direction, which was like, whoop. Yeah. Kind of scary because it puts more responsibility sure. back on your own shoulders to, you know, to take care of details. And, yeah. and hence one, you know, the beginning of being more like proactive of, mm, I, I better record myself and really listen to <laughs> really myself. take a listen. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. see, see how things are developing here. And it actually, after, after a, a while, it got me back into taking lessons so I could get my technique better. Well, I mean, I just say one one other thing about yeah. you know playing and, and seeing Michael Brecker in, in action was sometimes we'd play gigs and and it would be there would be a like a college big band would have him as a guest or even mm -hmm. a high school big band I don't remember exactly yeah. but there was times where I saw him sitting in with these ensembles that were pretty bad <laughs> in a yeah. bad rhythm section yeah yeah. But it didn't make any difference to the quality of his performance. I think it was a real valuable lesson that I learned that so, sometimes I, I think I was so dependent on the other musicians around me playing well and sounding good for me to feel like I played well and sounded yeah. good. But no matter how That's bad funny. everyone around him played, he played incredibly well. That's um. He sounded yeah. great all yeah. the time. So, so I call that he was like self-contained. He was so yeah. self-contained that it didn't didn't matter if people were great around him. He sounded great. If they were, and, you know, and, yeah. but if people weren't <laughs> great around him, he still sounded great. That's wow! What a lesson. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was it was a good one. Good one to take away. Yeah. Yeah. Here's Steve on one of my all-time favorite albums by Steps Ahead. This is Steps Ahead Live in Tokyo, 1986, and the tune is Oops.
who do you still want to? I mean, you work with so many people. Are who's on your list of people you still want to work with? Oh, good. Um, you know, I'd say, unfortunately, I there's a lot of folks that I, you know, I I would have loved to play with John McLaughlin. Mm. I played once with him, mm-hmm. but you know, and it was in India, and it was a being a part. It was a part of uh, being at Zakir Zakir Hussein, you know, the, the great tabla player, has a yearly memorial homage to his father, who is Alaraka, great tabla player, used mm-hmm. to be the accompanist of Ravi Shankar, mm-hmm. so. Uh, and in February, I think it's February 3rd, every year there's a concert that Zakir puts on in Mumbai. And it starts at about 8 o'clock in the morning and goes to about 10 o'clock at night. And drumming happens all all day. And and then at the end of the day, the particular year that he had me come and play, Shakti played at the end. And I, mm. I got to sit in wow. and play. You know, So that was cool. That was really exciting really you know great experience but but that that was someone i you know i yeah. would have really loved to play with he doesn't tour so much these days you know yeah, yeah. and uh, um i always cool. thought about it would be great to play with chick korea or, or herbie hancock you know those those musicians were always uh, high on the list yeah but you know I played with so many great players and, and now, you know, there's a lot of young players that I, you know, that yeah. I hopefully, hopefully will, will play with. And, and, uh, but, you know, and I'm, I can name some folks that I've gotten to play with that has been super, like Hiromi. Yeah. I saw you know? that. I saw you play with her actually up in, I think it was in Seattle. A jazz, a jazz alley. A jazz alley. Yeah. I'm pretty yeah, sure that, that yeah, was astounding. That, it, it was, <laughs> that was like kind of shocking to play <laughs> with her. And I had, I had seen her and that's how we knew each other because uh, I had been on jazz festivals in Europe with steps, I think. Yeah. And, and she was on the same festival and I'd go to see her and she'd yeah. see me. And, and, and when she put together uh, this fusion trio called the trio project with Simon Phillips and Anthony Jackson, um, there was, when she first put it together, and I think it was 2010, Simon Phillips was still playing in Toto. So he, he could only make about half of the gigs. So she needed a sub and, and she called me to do mm-hmm. that. And, and um, I said, sure, I'd love to do it and send me the music. And then I was instantly regretful when I got the music. <laughs> when you got the music. Because <laughs> it was like, hard. Oh, it was crazy hard. Like yeah. 10 pages. Some of the charts were literally oh my 10 God. pages long, handwritten. And I really, you know, I loved the way she writes charts because she literally pen, penciled to paper. Yeah. Not computer generated. So they're actually... Easy to read, easier to read than if they were computer generated because she knows how to write in a way that makes sense Mm -hmm. as far as how many measures are on the bar is what the phrase is. Yeah. Yeah. It's like computer generated charts are just the worst (laughs) to read unless somebody has the musicality to know how to adjust them. Adjust them. Yeah. So, so they make sense as Mm -hmm. far as the lines and the amount of measures on each line. 
but it was super hard music and um and simon phillips's performances were you know really over the top incredible but it was a blueprint it gave me a really solid blueprint so you know so i learned the music and a lot of that music i had to learn just four bars at a time eight bars at a time and practice Mm -hmm. it over and over again and, and then eventually piece it all together and be able to play it uh you know, all the way through and mem- and memorize it. I had to mem- memorize it. And some of the challenges of, of that particular gig was there was a drum solo in pretty much every song. Wow. Because uh, Anthony doesn't like to solo. Oh. You know, he loves to play the bass and be an accompanist, but he's not the kind of bass player that's like in a typical trio piano trio it's the piano player and the bass player the soloist and you know once or twice a night the drummer gets a solo yeah yeah but in in Hiromi's group the soloists were or are her and the drummer and then anthony maybe played one or mm. two solos a night. right and and so there was a really a high demand for soloing and every solo would generally be in an odd time you know, so it, it was, it really pushed me, you know, and, and I love that, you know, I really, I <laughs> right, love that. Up, yeah. yeah. But see, one of the things that, you know, people, when people know, like, oh, hire Steve Smith, because he can play really hard music, you know, and I, I, I've gotten that a lot. The problem, yeah, the, the problem with hard music is no matter how good you are, hard music is always it's, hard. It's still hard. <laughs> yeah. It's just that I have a system for learning it yeah you know and so now i know how to learn hard music but it right. still takes a long time yeah I it's bet. not like i could sight read that stuff yeah, yeah yeah or or even getting close to that it it takes you know for for those hiromi records it it took me weeks like and thankfully i'd have like a month or something yeah and she she would you know send me her new album and learn every song we're going to play every song that's also different than most <laughs> situations. Like Mike Stern will make a new record and I'll have a tour with Mike Stern and I'll say, Hey Mike, what are we going to do? Oh, I don't know. We'll play the same old song. Maybe one song from the new, from record. the new album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or even, you know, with steps ahead, when I was making records with steps ahead, you know, we'd make a whole record, but maybe we'd play three songs yeah, yeah. from the new record. Like Hiromi wasn't like that. It's like, learn all 10 songs. We're going to play all 10 songs. Wow. And then, and then the set would be all 10 songs, maybe one song from the last record. And then the next tour, all the all songs news. from the third, third album, and all just those songs and none of the songs from the old records, mm. you know? So, so it, it was, it was great. And, and that's cool. You know, and her work ethic, uh, influenced me also, um, for an, for example, like when, when I go on tour with most, jazz groups like my band or steps or mike stern we learn the music and then we play the gig and then if we are playing a week at ronnie scott's or some you know or club in switzerland there's a great club that uh marion marianne's it's in uh burn no it's in burn burn switzerland and and generally you know you play the gig and then you hang out during the day and do stuff. And then you show up at eight o'clock to play an eight thirty gig and you play and then you leave. And, you know, anyway, 
Hiromi's not like that. Every day was a rehearsal. Wow. No matter no matter what, you know, and, and she always had a list of things to go over from the night before, or you just rehearse every day, meet at the club at five o'clock. And, wow. and, and every day we played, every day we rehearsed. And the result of that was we really got inside the music. Mm. And, and, and it pushed, and it just freed me up. Yeah. And I think freed everyone up to really play the music. Yeah. So as you know, soon as I got back on tour with Vital Information, five o'clock, we're going to rehearse every rehearsing. single day. <laughs> and grumble, 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 you know. Right. But after a while, there was less grumbling and there was like, wow, man, the band is sounding better than ever. It's really. Go figure. We, yeah. And it, and it, and it works. It really, really works to like get deeply inside the music and rehearse certain things every day. And, and it sound check really play at sound yeah. check, not yeah. just kind of half heartedly play the music, like really play. So that that's, you know, I took away some, some really valuable lessons from, from that gig. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. What are you, um, what are you listening to these days? What's on your playlist? Okay. Paul Chambers. Paul Chambers. Nice. Yeah, you know, like I'm I'm I like these days I've been doing a, a lot of like going back to certain roots uh that and, that I had and when I when I first got to Berkeley and started you know, playing with musicians. There was a bass player that really wanted me to work on my time, you know, and, and, and he recommended that I really listen to the Miles Davis albums from that 1958 period. Mm -hmm. Working, steaming. Smoking. And, and I don't think there's a smoking, but there's a, yeah, is there steaming. a smoke? Yeah, working, steaming, relaxing, yep. and cooking. Cook. You know, there was, and, <laughs> Those are great. I think all those, they were all made with, in two sessions. Right. With Philly Joe Jones on drums, Paul Chambers on bass, Red Garland on piano, John yeah. Coltrane, and, and Miles. And there is a, a time feel that 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 group had. And this Absolutely. bass player said, like, play along with those records and really get into what Philly Joe Jones was, was about. And But now I hear it's like, yeah, but it's Paul Chambers and <laughs> Philly Joe. Right. But then but then Jimmy Cobb came on later, you know, and still Paul Chambers. Like like there's there's a, a bootleg series that of um it's called the Final Tour. Oh. And it's and it's Miles Davis and John Coltrane on tour in Europe huh. with Jimmy Cobb. Oh wow. It's it's great. You know, it's some of those things I play along with uh in the practice room. New York City edition. Mm -hmm. Th that's from that record. Okay. And and then and then there's Jimmy Cobb and Paul Chambers playing with Wayne Shorter, mm. right? Isn't that? Um, I think so. Live at the Blackhawk. Live at the Black. Yeah. Is that the is that the right thing? I can't remember I, now. Yeah, it could be. But it's Miles, you know, a Miles record. But yeah. Anyway, that that period, I'm spending a lot of time listening 
to that music and pretty much anything Paul Chambers played on, but he played on so much. Right. <laughs> he, he played on so many re- records, which then leads, you know, I've been listening to some of the lesser known jazz drummers like Art Taylor mm-hmm. and Frankie Dunlop and, you know, and, and just like digging in a little deeper to some of, some of those players. And they played on lots of records as well. Yeah. And, and, and were really great drummers though. They were more like studio, you know, they played in the studio a lot and didn't tour. So, you know, other stuff like I love Gregory Porter's, you know, the album that he did for Nat Cole, Mm. Rad Meldow's albums. Yeah. Yeah. the Highway Rider, Finding Gabriel, pretty awesome. Yeah, great album. Stuff. So, you know, so lots, lots of different things. Um, and and Richie Byrack has a couple of great solo albums out that we, you know, that that are really nice. So like, chill out at late at night, you know, put on the stereo. Right, that's cool. Yeah. What um what are your you may have already covered most of this but what what are your essentials for your practice sessions or your when you sit down what are your essential tools when you're practicing Yeah um well practice pad cuz I don't always want to practice on the on the drum you know a lot of times yeah. I'll warm up you know warm up on the pad um and I like the low volume setup you know, with the low volume symbols, I like, I tend to do that. And, and a metronome mm-hmm. headphones, you know, noise, re- not yeah. these re- noise reduction headphones, like the shooter kind, you know, the, yeah, yeah. They, the drum, oh, yeah. they, there's these drummer, drummer headphones that are, you know, really to protect your ears. Yeah. 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 So I always practice with, with ear protection when I'm, when I'm playing the real, you know, the live drum set. Yeah. Uh, video. You know, and then whatever material I'm working on, or if I, you know, if I'm working, a lot of times, like I have these, I have uh, blank notebooks, so I'll work, I'll work on something, and then come up with an idea, like a phrase that I really like, and and I'll write it down, mm-hmm. and then and then go from there. Like I think because I had this connection between playing and seeing written music it's very helpful for me to write things down yeah and it clarifies yeah clarifies things uh for me in fact sometimes like uh, when i play music and i'm and i memorize stuff but i can't remember what it sounds like i can i can many times remember what it looks like and then play it it's like it's not like a photographic memory, sure, any, anything like that. But I can just like visualize a bar of yeah, music and what 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 the rhythm is, you know, what it. So that that really helps me. So I, I have blank music paper, like a little notebook that I fill up, and as soon as I fill one up, then I'll <laughs> start. I'll start another one. Ah. But it, it's a nice way of documenting my yeah. ideas and and you know all the Indian rhythm things that I've learned. I've written those down. Right. I would imagine you'd have to. And that, that's really helped me. Sweet. Yeah. Where are you yeah. find drawing inspiration these days? I, I just, in general, from, you know, listening to the, to the, you know, the classic 
yeah. albums that I'm that I've been talking about and um, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a I don't have a a lack of inspiration. Okay. You know, That's, just in general. Yeah. You know, I I'm I always it seem to find things I'm interested in That's doing great. and working on. Yeah. So it's not often that I am uninspired. Wow. And, you know, and I, and I, I guess, you know, I have somewhat, I have a community. Yeah. For instance, like my editor, uh, Christian Grissat, that lives in France, like, you know, we'll, we'll trade things back and forth. Like he's a really good drummer. So he'll record himself playing something. And I'll go, Oh, that's cool. And, and then I'll send him stuff. And then Joe <laughs> Bergamini, who, who is, he's, he works for Hudson music mm -hmm. and Hudson music puts out my DVDs and, and, uh, and, and Joe will be home practicing something. He's a, he, he's like, he does everything. He's, he plays, he's probably played most every show on Broadway. Wow. You know, so he's a Broadway pit drummer, mm -hmm. but he's also, uh, an editor for drum, uh, books. Yeah. And he's an editor of, you know, the written word and music, you know, like he's Talented written books, books about Neil Peart and transcribed like complete rush songs. And, wow. And so, so all, you know, so he's, he's a super talent. So he'll just say, hey, Steve, I've been working on this. And he'll just put up his camera, film himself and send it to me. And it's like, oh, that's cool. All right. And then I'll practice something <laughs> and send it back. You know, so that kind of stuff is really fun. And right. then I, like I mentioned, I heard about this Wilcox and rudimental challenge, you know, so, you know, so there's certain things that like that, that keep me going. Okay. Like Steve Gadd in lockdown has written a new drum book. Oh, okay. Hasn't that. come out yet. <laughs> Nobody knows it yet. <laughs> Very few people know, but, uh, Rob, Wallace, who's the president of Hudson Music and Joe Bergamini, they were like, here, here's a couple of pages of Steve Gadd's new book. What do you think? And it's like, wow, this is great. You know, this is really great stuff. So I'll practice it and then record myself and, and send it back. So, mm. you know, so that's that's kind of fun and, and inspiring Yeah, to do things like that. And and I'm, I think having, you know, created some kind of a lockdown community is pretty helpful like that. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. That's important. Having that community around for sure. Yeah. What do you, what's coming up for you in 2021? Do you have any gigs lined up or recording projects or anything coming up? A summer at the lake. <laughs> summer at the lake. I like it. <laughs> no, I don't have any, you know, I, okay. I have a few projects that I'm, like slowly working on, mm. but I really, I really want to get back into whatever kind of live gigs that I do, like very cautiously and very slowly. Okay. I have to say, I, I have not missed being on tour during this, you know, this period. Yeah. I've, I've enjoyed being home with my wife Diane and spending time together, nice, and 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 having a routine of you know practicing, and then and then just you know whatever life duties that we <laughs> end up doing every day, you know, right. it's it's been okay. 
and kind of nice. And, yeah. um, and I'm not going to be booking any gigs that I'll have to cancel. <laughs> sure. know, so that's, so I don't, I don't want to get into that yeah. um, kind of a situation. So I'm just, I'm just going to wait and see. But yeah, but I, I mean, like there's things that I'm working on modern drummer is, is like asked me to do a book and I'm called modern drummer legends, <laughs> which I don't particularly resonate with that word legends, right? but, but it's a, it's like a, I guess kind of a brand they have. Yeah. And, and so what they do is like, I've been on the cover of Modern Drummer five times. So they put all five interviews in <laughs> one book and then I do a new interview okay. and they'll transcribe some songs and, you know, and, and, and put out a book with some new photographs and old photographs and, and they'll put out a book that's, you know, that's my collection of Modern Drummer covers. And so they're doing it with, I don't know, 15 different drummers, you know, sure. I'm not the only one. So, but it's, it takes work and I, and I have to be involved with it Yeah. and I have to look at it and, and, you know, so that, that takes time. So that, that's something that's mm -hmm. in process. And, uh, nice. and I'm also working with Pete Lockett, who's a, he lives in uh, England and he's an expert on Indian rhythms North and South. He plays Tabla from North India and he mm -hmm. plays Kanjira from South India. And he's written a book on Tihais. And I don't know if you know what the I word is. I don't know what Tihai is. It's an, it's an Indian rhythmic device of how to end a phrase. And, mm. and it's a, and, 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 simple terms you play one rhythm one rhythm three times and it comes to one it resolves on one ah. and you play the exact same rhythm three times in a row and then it resolves itself to one that's like a you know a definition sure sure so so for instance if if you wanted like the most a simple super simple t high would be if you wanted to play three fives you know, five note groupings yeah. in a row and then have it land on one. Right. Okay. So the, and so if you look at one measure of four, four time and you divide it into 16th notes, mm -hmm. there's 16, 16th notes in there. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. And so in order to play 15 16th notes, which is three times five, if you start the T high on the, 16th note after one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then it, it comes to the one, you know, like one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one. Right. So that's like a super simple T high. Okay. You know, cause you're yeah. playing that rhythm of five, three times and it comes to the one. Mm -hmm. So, but of course it can go on and on and yeah, on, yeah. like and be super sophisticated, be yeah. really, really long. And then, come to the one. And so it's, it's a device that all Indian musicians use, hmm. not just drummers, right? but you know, instrumentalists as well, because that's one of the coolest things about Indian music. It's, it's only as in quotes, 
melody and rhythm. Right. But it's melody and rhythm at a level that it, it, it goes beyond Western music, yeah. melody and rhythm, because there, there's no harmony. So the, right. the, all, all of the instrumentalists know as much about rhythm, pretty much, I'd say, as the drummers. Hmm. You know, you have to right. in order to communicate like this. And so what happens and how a tihai is used is there'll be an improvisation, whatever the instrument is, and then you'll signal the end of a solo or maybe the end of a part of a solo by a tihai. Okay. And generally tihais are going to be longer than that one that I just sure, demonstrated. Sure. But but and so what happens is is let's say that like there's a great album called Making music, Zakir Hussein's solo album on ECM. Mm-hmm. It's from a long time ago, and it's Jan Gabrik, John McLaughlin, Harry Prasad Chareja on flute, Bansarai, and, and Zakir on tabla. And so Harry Prasad is playing the flute, and he's soloing, 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 and then he goes, right? So that's like the first of three. Okay. And then Zakir recognizes, oh, here comes the tea high. So the second time, you know, like, you know, so, so it's like a, a signal, a signal, then, then the drummer joins in for the second. And if not the second, the third, and then that's how you hear these, you know, really cool unison, yeah, rhythmic melodic things. That's really resolve themselves is through the use of T high. Mm-hmm. So, Pete Lockett wrote an encyclopedia of T highs, <laughs> <laughs> and he wants me to to play them all. Wow! So I've been a little intimidated, but I I'm, will get to it. I guess <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. and I've done a lot of them, and I, I can learn them. I, I, you know, I've. I've learned dozens and dozens of them playing yeah. with all different Indian musicians. And, you know, so he's recorded them already. And now I need to <laughs> get right. my, learn them and get in the studio. So that's something I will do. And hopefully over the course of the summer, I'll find a recording studio in upstate New York and, and do, and do that. that. That yeah. sounds fun and challenging. Yeah, it, it will be. Steve, where can people find out more about you if they want to learn more about Steve Smith? Well, my my website is vitalinformation.com. Okay. And Facebook, it's it's the same pretty much. It's facebook.com slash vitalinformation. Mm-hmm. And then I have Twitter, at Steve Smith Drums, and Instagram, at Steve Smith Drums. And you have a YouTube channel too, right? Oh, right. Steve Smith YouTube channel, <laughs> but you can find that on, on my website. Right. That's the easiest way to get to that is go to vitalinformation.com and then go to videos and you yeah. can, you'll find it. Awesome. Yes. Steve, thank you so much for being here. It's been a true delight for me to have you here and um, we'll have to have you back to talk more about Indian music and, and other things, but it, this was, this was a real Real fun for me. Thank you so much. Well, thank for you. Spending Steve, time. I, yeah, it was it was really fun. Had it. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast. It's really <laughs> been 
really a lot of fun. And and especially that that I know so many of the people that you right. interviewed Terry Longshore, you know, and his story and I you know, Matthew Krimmelman and Teresa McCoy, I don't know her, but it was totally fascinated yeah. to, to hear hear her story. And uh, anyway, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. All right, Steve. Thanks again. Yes, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. One last thing before you head out. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also want to check out my talk with former Blue Man Group drummer Matthew Primelman or the episode with jazz drummer Clarence Penn. You can find show notes and all past episodes on the website, theplayfulmusician.com. You'll also find links to all things mentioned in the show and past shows there as well. Once again, that's theplayfulmusician.com. We've got a stellar lineup in the weeks ahead, so make sure to follow the show on Instagram or Facebook to get a sneak peek of coming guests. Thanks again. Stay safe. And we'll see you soon.